Thank you. It's great to uh, be with you again this evening, uh, last year in September. Um, and uh, it's always lovely to a new fellowship, isn't it? Um, so thank you very much for having me. Um, and I trust I'll be a blessing to you tonight, and uh, I'm sure you'll be an encouragement to me. Um, before we uh, start our service, should we read uh, a short passage from Philippians? Um, it's been a passage on my mind recently for various reasons. We're actually going through Philippians in our morning services in Lemington Spire at the moment. Um, soon as me, you might get some Philippians next week from Matthew, who knows. Um, but Philippians 2, as we start, let's fix our um, eyes and thoughts on the Lord Jesus. Uh, Philippians 2 in the first 11 verses. Therefore, if there is any cons- consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which, is, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's wonderful to be reminded at the outset, isn't it, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, so that we can uh, meet together in unity, uh, as it encourages us to do at the start of that chapter. But it's through the Lord Jesus and what he's done, how he humbled himself, uh, though he is God, became a man, uh, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he's done that, and therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name. Uh, and he is reigning as king. And uh, isn't it wonderful that one day every knee will bow before him, some willingly, um, some unwillingly it will be uh, forced in many ways um, but he is Lord he is King and that's who we come in the name of tonight isn't it as we gather to worship uh, and we gather to worship him and the reading for this evening we're in Matthew's gospel and chapter 25 and in the middle of chapter 25 uh, we're going to be reading from verse 14 through to verse 30, it's the parable of the talents. So Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, 
to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground, and hid his lord's money. After a long time, the lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came, and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you have you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Great. Well, if you can have uh, your Bibles open to Matthew 25, that would be uh, a great help as we look through this parable um, together. Earlier this year, um, at school, I'm a math teacher if you didn't know, um, we were told that uh, we should be expecting an Ofsted inspection any day. Okay. Apparently, we were due one. I don't know if you can tell that or not, but apparently we were. Um, But really, for the previous four years of working at that school, the message had always been, uh, we don't do things for Ofsted, but we do them for the children, which, you know, is very commendable. Um, But suddenly, with the prospect of inspection looming, everything changed, and everything was about getting ready for Ofsted. Um, Any day, they could pick up the phone and say, tomorrow, we're coming in. Um, and we needed to be ready. We had to have books marked, we had to have classrooms uh, needed to be tidy, paperwork needed to be ready, uh, and the list went on. You know, we even had, uh, in our shared uh, documents, a folder called Ofsted Ready. That's how serious we were. And it was all with the hope of being judged an outstanding school. You know, the panic button had been hit um, because they thought they were coming. And everything was being put in place to be ready. There was this warning of judgment to come. And we it was action stations. Now, I've since um, changed schools. 
and no Ofsted inspection happened while I was there. And as far as I know, it, hasn't, it still hasn't happened. But we have a similar warning in Scripture. And the warning is this. Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready. So just like we know that Ofsted are coming, we need to be ready for them. We need to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. But unlike Ofsted, there is no time when he's due. Okay, we don't know. Uh, it says, he is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's Matthew 24. Um, there is no day's warning. He's not going to pick up the phone and say, I'm coming tomorrow. It's not going to happen. We don't know when he's going to be coming. And we need to be ready at all times. And really, that's the theme of Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus is coming, and we need to be ready. So tonight, we're in the middle of Matthew 25. But uh, this is the context of the parable we read earlier. In Matthew 24, um, Jesus, amongst other things, is teaching that he will come again to earth to judge. Uh, And the main message, amongst all the intricacies uh, in that chapter is this be ready for that day so matthew 24 verse 42 says watch therefore for you do not know what hour your lord is coming and then a couple of verses later in verse 44 therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect the message is quite clear isn't it he is coming therefore be ready And in some ways, it doesn't go much further than that in chapter 24. Uh, But then we come to chapter 25, and we have three parables. And we're looking at the middle one tonight. We have three parables. We have the the parable of the ten virgins. That's the first one. We have the parable of the talents, which one we're looking at tonight. And then the last one is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in each of those parables, it describes two types of people. One type who are ready for the coming king, and one type of people who are not ready. So in the first parable, the the parable of the ten virgins, we have the wise against the foolish, how it describes them in verse 2. The wise prepare for that day, uh, but the foolish leave it too late. And then tonight's parable, the parable of the talents, um, we have the good and the faithful on one hand, against the wicked and the lazy. And then the third parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, we have the people who are described as blessed, verse 34, versus the people who are described as cursed, verse 41. And what I want you to see uh, here is that all of these sets of people are one and the same. So the wise in the parable of the virgins are the same as the good and the faithful, And who are the same as the blessed. The foolish are the wicked and the lazy who are the cursed. The three parables are deliberately placed one after the other in Jesus' teaching. And actually there's, there's some progression here as well. So parable number one, the description of the people is really kind of a mindset, wise or foolish. Parable number two kind of talks about lifestyle. Good and faithful or wicked and lazy. And then parable number three, it's talking about their state before God. Blessed or cursed. 
what Jesus is doing here is just turning the screw to demonstrate that we all need to be ready. He's emphasising that point. So, how does our parable tonight teach us to be ready for Christ's return? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to split it into two main parts, points, and there'll be some sub-points in those. Uh, Firstly, how to be ready for that day. And then secondly, what will happen on that day. So, this parable tonight, let's have a look at our parable tonight. We have, what we have here is a parable of a, a story of a master and his servants. And the master goes away and entrusts sums of money to different servants, expecting them to trade with them and to make more money for himself. A long time later, he returns and calls to account the three servants he gave money to. Now, the master here is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone away, and one day he will come back and call us to account. Um, And in Luke's version of this parable, or Luke's... uh, yeah, when Luke records this parable, it, he describes the master as a noble going away to be crowned king. And then he returns as king. It's the Lord Jesus. So the master is a picture of Christ, and the servants show us what we might be like. And as I said earlier, there are two types of people. There are the faithful against the wicked. Two of the servants were ready, and one was not. So, what can we do to be ready for Christ's return? Firstly, we can be ready for Christ's return by, first of all, knowing our master. You see this throughout the the parable. We can be ready for Christ's return by knowing our master. And if you were to read the first two verses of the parable, I wonder what your opinion of the master would be. So verses 14 and 15. If you look at those, we would probably say that he is good and generous. You know, he's going away for some time, don't know how long, um, but he doesn't keep his money to himself or keep it close to him, take it with him. No, he entrusts it to these three servants. Um, And I might be wrong here, but it seems to me like he has entrusted all of his money. So it describes it as his goods, or the NIV translation of that is his wealth, which I think suggests the lot of it. All of it. He gives it all. Whether or not that is, is all of his property, we can still see that he does not hold back. So to the first, he gives five talents. Two to the next, one to the last. Uh, and if we're there thinking, well, actually, that, the last servant um, hasn't got very much. Well, this is one of the most conservative estimates I've got for the worth of a talent. Um, it the most conservative estimate is about 20 years' wages for a labourer. So to put that into this um, day and age, it might be equivalent to £400,000. They're on 20000 a year. Incredibly generous. That's to the least. The first person's got 100 years' wages, more than two lifetimes worth of work. How good is this master? He's a good master, isn't he? Uh, but he's also fair... It says he gives each according to his own ability. So he doesn't give overly to those who couldn't manage. And he doesn't give stingily to those who could cope. 
he is fair. That's just from the first two verses of the parable. The overriding message Jesus is getting across here is that the master is good. And remember that the master is a picture of Jesus himself. He is good. He gives us so much. This master is good and fair. And two of the servants understand that perfectly. Uh, So when the master comes back, they speak with reverence and affirm that he is good. So they both say, this is verses 20 and then 22 for the second. They both say to the master, um, Lord, you delivered to me X number of talents. Saying, yes, you are a good master. You gave me this. They know him. And yet, despite the picture that's been painted for us, one of the servants didn't know him. He didn't know him as good and fair. So when the master came to the third servant, well, the third servant shows that he does not know his master at all. He describes him as hard and unfair in verse 24. So when you read verse 24, it says... Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. It's not the same person that's being described, is it? It's not the person who's been described in verses 14 and 15. This servant does not know his master. Uh, And you may say to me, actually, well, the master agrees with the servant in verse 26, doesn't he? Um, Well, no, he doesn't quite. Interestingly, in verse 26, the master never affirms that he was a hard man, or he is a hard man. Uh, And you might say, well, he says that you, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. But he's not actually affirming that either. What he's doing there is he's saying, he's using the servant's own words to condemn him. He's saying, well, if that is really what I'm like... Well, then you should have done this. Your excuse exposes you even more. This master is good. But the third servant did not know him as good. He thought he was hard. He did not know his master. Now, there is some debate as to whether this servant is representing all unbelievers or whether he's representing Christians who do not live a life devoted to to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, My view is the first option seems more likely uh, for two reasons. Firstly, as we've already discussed, he doesn't know his master. He doesn't know him. But second, his destination is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A description used elsewhere of a place of judgment. And the Christian will never face this judgment. But whether I'm right or not on that point does not take away from the fact that, first of all, to be ready for Christ's return, we need to know him. We need to know the master. And, friends, can I say this? We need to know Christ. And a theme throughout these parables is actually some who may appear to know Christ actually don't know Christ. There will be people who from the outside look like 
They, are, they know and they are known by the Lord Jesus. But actually they are not. So in the previous parable, it was five out of the ten virgins. And five of them were told that the bridegroom never knew them. This week it's one out of the three. And they're ejected from the master's presence. When I look at Emmanuel Church in Leamington Spa, we've got, we might have 300 in the morning. How many of those who would be professing to be Christians might suffer the same fate and say, actually, they don't know the master. They don't know Christ. Friends, do you really know the Lord Jesus for yourself? Do you know him through faith in his saving work on the cross? Have you been reconciled to him? through the forgiveness that his blood offers. Because naturally we're all enemies. We cannot rely on coming to church or having a Christian family or whatever it might be. We can only be brought near through the blood of Christ. And if we don't know him, there is no way that we are ready for him to return. There's no way. So the first way we can be ready for Christ's return is by knowing him, knowing Christ. But being ready for Christ's return is more than just knowing Christ. And I think we as you know, Reformed uh, believers can easily leave it at that because uh, we know that it's only through grace and nothing of ourselves, which is true. Uh, but this passage does actually say that it's being ready for Christ's return is more than just knowing the Lord Jesus. Yes, ultimately, we are ready if we know him. Um, but we are also called to work for him now. So secondly, to be ready for Christ's return, we need to use our abilities to further God's kingdom. So the majority of the parable is this, is this story of the master meeting his servants again. And uh, as he settled accounts with them, he is interested in what each servant has done with the money that was entrusted to them. And it's important for us at this point, I would say, to think about well, what these talents might represent. Because if we don't understand that, then we won't understand what it means to trade with them. Or again, as the NIV puts it, to put his money to work. What does it mean to put the talents to work? Um, so the master has given the servants all the resources they need to make profit. So... What do those resources represent? What are those resources? Again, there's a bit of debate about it, about whether it represents a specific thing or whether it can be interpreted more broadly as anything that God has given that can be used to further his kingdom. I think what the way J.C. Ryle summarises it is really helpful. So it's a bit of a long quote, but it's a good one. So let me read how J.C. Ryle describes it. He puts it like this. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent, our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible. All, all our talents. So Ryle says that actually everything we're given that can be used to glorify God is a talent. Then he goes on. Whence came these things? What hand bestowed them? 
Why are we what we are? Why are we not worms that crawl on the earth? There is only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. So everything we have is from God. And everything we have should be used for God. All of our energies, all of our resources, our money, our time, everything we have is used for the glory of God. They are our talents. And that is what the master here expects. He expects the servants to use the things he's given them to increase his wealth in in the story. He expects them to make more money, to expand his wealth. Or for us to further God's kingdom, to glorify him. We have been given so much by God, haven't we? And we should be using it for his kingdom. That is what it means to be ready. We are ready by being diligent in the Lord's work. And and notice how diligent the good servants were. Um, I think, actually, in the New King James, there's um, one slight word missing uh, in verse 16. It says that he went and traded. Okay, But in the Greek... There's this word, I don't know if to say this right, but euthios, which, uh, which means immediately. So actually, uh, in verse 16, it's, it should, could read like this. Then he who had received the five talents went and immediately traded with them and made another five more. He did it immediately. There was no thought with this servant of it could wait until tomorrow. No, he was living with the thought that, this, that his master could return any minute. He could return tomorrow and I wouldn't have done anything. And shouldn't that be our attitude as well? Yes, we should be prepared to wait a long time for Christ's return. We may not see Christ's return in our lifetime. This servant had to wait a long time too. But at the same time, we should be living in the knowledge... That he could return any day. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight. It could be before I finish. Let's get to work. Immediately. As this servant did. So we've thought about how. Well we've seen from this parable. How it teaches us to be ready. For the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. By both knowing our sins forgiven. And knowing him personally but also by living a life devoted to the Lord's work and for his glory. And now we turn our attention to, actually, what does this parable teach us that will happen on that day? Uh, And maybe, for those of you who may be thinking that there is no need to get ready for that day, then this will show you why it's vital that we are ready. So really there are three things I've got that will happen on the day when Christ returns. And first of all, on that day, we will all have to give an account. We will all have to give an account. The main section of this parable is taken up with the servants giving an account for what they've done. It's verses 19 through to 30. And as the master returns, what does he want to do? He, He settles accounts with them. It seems the whole purpose for returning is to settle accounts with his servants. And that will happen... For each one of us on the day Christ returns. He will come 
And we will stand before him and say what we have done with the time and the resources that he has given us. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Firstly, when we give an account, it is an individual thing. They don't come as a group of three servants. They come on their own. When we will not come as a group, it will not be that um, Christ will come and he will call the church at Chelmsley Wood together. He won't do it. It's individually. He will call me on my own. He'll call my wife on her own. We won't go together. It's an individual thing. We have to give an account for ourselves. We cannot rely on other people. It's for ourselves. So that's the first thing. It's an individual thing. Um, And secondly, providing an excuse for what you have done is of no use. When we give an account, there is no use providing an excuse. If you look at the third servant's account... Um, He tries to soften the master, doesn't he, by excusing his actions. Um, But the master is only really interested in what he has done with what he had. But that part of the account takes only a tiny fraction of the third servant's speech. The majority of it is taken up with an excuse. But the master sees straight through it, as we'll see in a minute. So we will give an account of what we have done with what we have been given. And ultimately that will be uh, what we have done with Christ. Do we know him? But also it will be how we have lived for him. How have we used our resources to further God's kingdom? We will have to face that individually. There's the first thing. So we have to give an account. Secondly, we will all face the judgment of God. So... Each one of the servants is given an account, and they will each hear the judgment of their master. For the first two, it's a commendation. So it's verse 21 and 23. For the third, it's condemnation. Verses 26 to 27. But each of these judgments have the same structure. And in fact, the first two are identical. Um, But they all split into three parts. And in each of them, The master, uh, it starts with the master stating to each servant who they are and what they are like. They all start with his Lord said to him and then the statement. So for the first two, they hear some of the most precious words in the Bible. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's a statement of who they are and what they are like. They are good and faithful And ultimately, that opening statement will determine our destination. When we stand before God on the day of judgment, it is who we are that is what matters. And what I mean by that is on whose merit are we trusting? Because I know that I am not good and I am not faithful. So how can I possibly hope to receive that commendation? Well, because I'm not trusting in my own merit. I am trusting in Christ's merit. He was good and he was faithful to the end. The third is told, he's a wicked, lazy servant. It couldn't be much different, could it? The character comes first. Because the second part, which is what they have done, 
flows out of the character. Both the first two are commended for their faithful acts, but the third is condemned for his laziness. He is condemned less for what he has done, but more for what he has not done. He is so lazy that he would not even invest the money to gain interest, showing that he does not care for the master at all, reinforcing the point that he is wicked. We are all going to face the judgment of God. Oh, that he would save us all. Well done, good and faithful servant. But then the third part of the judgment, and the third thing that will happen on that day, is that we will all receive our just rewards. And what great rewards await the faithful? It says of the two faithful servants, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What a reward. The point here is that the faithful are rewarded. And rewarded generously. Not only do they get given great responsibility and position. But they also get given way more than they could have ever expected. They, are, they get told to enter into the joy of your Lord. All the good things that the master has are shared with these servants. That is a, the great blessing for the faithful. And that is the believer's reward. We share in Christ's happiness. What a reward. What a thing to look forward to. But the other end, at the other end, is the wicked servant. And what happens to him? Well, even what he has is given to the first servant. Again, emphasising the generosity and overwhelming grace of the master. So this is verse um, 28 onwards. And then he's cast outside. He's excluded from the master's happiness. Now, earlier we saw the progression in Matthew 25 in the descriptions of the two types of people. Um, But it goes further than that. I think it's useful to see the progression of the destinations too. Um, So in the three parables, there's progression in destinations. So for the first type of people, in parable number one, they are welcomed into the wedding feast. Parable number two, it moves on to sharing in your master's happiness or sharing in the joy, enter the joy of your Lord. But if that isn't enough, listen to the description in the last parable for the blessed. This is Matthew uh, 25, verse 34. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amazing, isn't it? What a reward for the faithful ones who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. A kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And then there's a progression in the other type as well. So the second type of people starts with them being barred from the wedding feast. And then the second parable, they are cast into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the third parable says this, verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire... Prepared for the devil and his angels. So one uh, place is prepared for God's people. 
And one place is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's terrifying to think about, isn't it? Friends, that's the way the world will end. That is the destination of each one of us. One of those places. Get ready now. As we close, I want to make uh, one other point of application. Throughout the sermon, really, um, I've been applying it a lot to those who might not know the Lord Jesus for themselves at this point. But here I want to talk specifically to those who do. And it's very simple. The parable calls us to work well for the Lord, to be diligent in the Lord's work. God will judge our works as well as whether we have trusted in Christ or not. Okay? So the question is, what are you doing for the Lord? What do you devote your energies to? Are we like the first servants who went out immediately to further the wealth of his master? Or are we like the third servant and we're lazy and we bury it, bury the good things that God has given us or even use them for our own satisfaction? As C.T. Studd put it, only what's done for Christ will last and as I close, let me quote uh, this chorus, which is based on another quote by Stud, as we close. And let's make it our prayer. It's um, written by, uh, I think it's, the chorus is written by a friend of mine, I think. <laughs> um, but it's based on a quote from Stud. And it says this, When I am dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee. I shall not worry, though the way has been rough, that thy dear feet led the way is enough. I shall not worry whatever I gave of time or money, one soul to save. When I am dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been blazed out for thee.